Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Welcome back to uh, the second hour of Amplify, where our guest is Dr. Kenneth Boa, Ph.D., Author, speaker, president of Reflections Ministries, Omnibus Media Ministries, and Trinity House Publications. He um, has written over 50 books. Um, this is the third. The one we're talking about tonight is Shaped by Suffering, subtitled How Temporary Hardships Prepare Us for Our Eternal Home. I'm glad to say that the first two books in this trilogy we did four years ago and two years ago, and he's back again. And uh, and Ken, I sort of cut you off as we were going into the news, and there were two points you wanted to make. Wanted to make uh, two points. I was suggesting that there are two things that we must embrace and believe, or we will not be able to trust God enough to obey what he calls us to do. And those two things are, first of all, we must believe that he's in control and we're not. That's the first truth, because very difficult to, to realize, uh, to let loose of the delusion and the illusion of control. We don't control an, an hour, let alone a year. And the reality is every everything is, is a gift and grace of God. So first of all, that he's in control and we're not. And secondly, and this is the harder one for us to grasp, it, we, he has our best interests at heart and we don't even know what they are. We suppose we ha- we know what our best interests look like, but like the 12 spies at Kadesh Barnea, they thought their best interests was to, were to retract and to draw back. And the two saw the same truth, but they saw it from an eternal perspective, and they said, God's brought us in to take, take this land. So it all comes down then to who has our best interests at heart. And, and only when we believe that only God could know what our best interest, because we judge according to appearances, but he sees the outcome, the consequence. So that's, those are two fundamental truths, that he's in control and he has our best interests at heart. You um, write about uh, preparing uh, to suffer, that uh, today in, un- in unprecedented ways we're able to protect ourselves physically, that all we have to do is take some pill, and there's always new pills out there uh, advertised on on television and, and radio, um, maybe to the point that we we don't expect pain or we shouldn't have pain. We've we've come to associate health, wealth, and happiness with divine blessings and and with persecution. And you make a distinction between hard persecution and soft persecution. Tell us about it. Yeah, there's, a, there's also the hard Thanksgiving and the and the easier Thanksgiving as well. 
uh, there are per- forms of persecution that can be very overt, but some of them uh, and, ex- and physical, as in uh, Paul and Silas. But there are other forms that are more subtle, and they can be, in fact, uh, psychological. And there are, we are in an, immersed in a spiritual warfare, and we know that ultimately we are pursuing a path that's going to, as sojourners and pilgrims and wayfarers, exiles, strangers in this world, look at all the metaphors that are used in Scripture, that we, our lives are brief and ephemeral, but that the persecutions and the adversities that we face and will endure in this world, whether physical or spiritual or psychological, are going to be as nothing in comparison. That's why Paul says, I consider the, the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing with the glory to be revealed to us. And so this concept is the only way we can embrace that is to treat things according to their true value, to treat the temporal as such, hold it with a loose grip, and treat the eternal as that which is going to endure. The problem is faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, Hebrews 11.1, which means that biblical faith is to actually pursue the unseen over the seen and the not yet over the now, and that takes tremendous risk. But again, we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who in fact suffered for us so that ultimately he brings us in in his arms and to the presence of the living God. So it's all, again, they, these mm-hmm. threads of thought and truths in Scripture continue to multiply and reticulate, and it's a beautiful portrait. The more we know of who he is, the more we can trust him. To know him, to experience, I don't mean just head knowledge, experiential relational knowledge, to know him is to love him, and to love him is to trust him, and to trust him is to be willing to obey him, and to obey him is to abide in him, and to abide in him is to bear fruit, and to bear fruit is to glorify the Father. How then... um... Can one prepare for suffering when we tend to believe that um, fear of suffering is is even worse than the suffering itself? Yeah, I think, the, again, fixing our eyes on Jesus, it comes to my mind that at, at the end of the day, um, we can't control, we don't know what's going to happen this very day. We're in a context um, of great and great spiritual warfare and adversity. And, and there are all kinds of forces that would seek then to eradicate uh, the, the power of the gospel, the good news of, 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 in Jesus. But at the same time, he's called us to live each day as, uh, as itself. I can't manage the, and wait, take the weight of seven days on this one. So each day has enough trouble of its own. It's, it's, every day is a, a birth, a growth, a day, decay, and a death. Every day is a mini life. And so ultimately, we can trust him in this day. And that's what he asks us to do. And so I lean on him. And here's what it comes down to. It comes down to habituation, to training, to hearing that voice, to knowing it, and to renewing my mind so I have an eternal perspective in the temporal arena. I don't think we're going to do very well in embracing that biblical joy if we're not renewing our minds with the transcendent truths of Scripture. Um, if we just keep on just allowing the narrative of the world, the world will, def- will define you by default, do nothing, and tell you what to pursue. But the Word will only define you by discipline. So that's another side of that coin. Uh, you point out to us that a Christ-like attitude toward adversity is not developed by accident and is not our no. natural instinct. And you write, no. preparation for suffering is important, but it's not foolproof. A humble estimation of oneself, of one's own spiritual mettle, will ensure 
we don't underestimate the very real pull of our sinful nature and of the enemy of our souls. Quote, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall, close quote, as Paul admonishes in 1 Corinthians. Realization of our need to depend on God and not on ourselves is a major way God uses our suffering to shape our character to be more like his sons. Yes. It's leaning into his grace, leaning into a person, coming to know him, not propositionally, but personally. And so the propositions point to a person, but the person must be trusted. And that is a relationship that grows and is developed by habituation, by continued responsiveness to his uh, overtures in our lives. And ultimately then to realize that everything he asked me to do is going to be ultimately for my good, even though at the time it makes no sense at all. So it's compatible with uh, biblical joy, as you rightly pointed out earlier, is compatible with still uh, a, not, a, a lack of, of happiness. Happiness is contingent on the circumstances, but this joy goes beyond the circumstances because now we're not looking at the things that are seen but the things which are unseen because the things that are seen are temporary but the things that are unseen are going to endure forever. So again, setting our minds in the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, uh, this, these are biblical injunctions that are Im- inviting us to realize who are we? We are spiritual beings exp- having this earthbound embodied experience. Uh, or, which was it... Um, I'm trying to, William Butler late, yeah, Yates, I remember in his uh, journey to Byzantium, uh, Byzantium, he describes the human condition as sick with desire and fastened mm-hmm. to a dying animal. We are in this world and we have this desire for something more, and yet this mortality, our earth suits wearing down, but age conspires with God to take away our temporal hope. He even uses that as a means of drawing us to the things that really will endure, right? And those things that are going to all be left behind. Um, When I read this particular part of your book, I was uh, very interested uh, as you're talking about how we need to prepare uh, to suffer within this particular chapter. And you talk about different levels of preparation. And here you write, not only individuals, but also churches, local bodies of believers need to prepare for suffering. Why is that? Well, I think especially in our time, uh, we are now seeing that it is uh, really open ground, it's really open season for vilifying or, or, or violating uh, believers in Christ. It's intriguing. Try this with any other group, any other uh, entity, and you'd be in serious trouble. But here we see a culture in which we are find ourselves really immersed in in what Paul calls in his own time. It was a, a culture that was, as he as he put it in, uh, to the Philippians, um, it, it, it just a, a, an evil and depraved culture. So that was what it was like in first uh, in in Rome. I think we're more like that in many ways, and I think that there's going to be increasing uh, persecution of believers, and it's going to require the body of believers to support one another when a person loses. Uh, their job because they they cannot agree with a particular uh, statement that they're going to be required to make, then suddenly then it comes down to their career or their convictions. I'm sorry to say a lot of people will cave in, but what happens if a person sustains one's convictions? 
Well, then we have the issue of what the body has always been meant to do, to support one another, to build up with one another, to encourage one another, to empower one another. And so this is not an, a loner's game. It's something we do in community. And that's what's necessary. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to be, there's going to be more and more overt um, opposition to the followers of Jesus in our, in our own country. Yeah, I think it's growing, growing deeper and deeper. Oh, it is. It is. Uh, you, make, uh, you write about the difference between innocent suffering and suffering for wrongdoing. And um, you indicate that Jesus' suffering and dying for our sins became a substitute for us. But was, was Jesus silent in his suffering? Yes, that's the interesting thing that Peter uses in the in, in the second chapter, um, because he tells us he silent suffered sinlessly and silently, and 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 as a substitute. This is an incredible thought. So that uh, he effectively is telling us then that um, just as we are called to follow in his steps, and this is the interesting thing as he puts it here as an exemplar. And so it's in First Peter t- uh, two. Um, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in the steps who committed no sin, so his, he suffered sinlessly. He suffered um, silently. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. And suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept trusting himself to him who judges rightly. And he, su- he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so he suffered as a, as a, as a, as a substitute as well. And in a very real way, we too can suffer when we suffer wrong, it can be sinless. Make sure it's not something because of something you did, but it could be sinless. It could be silent, and it could be a substitute for other people. In other words, we mediate the life of Christ in, as he lives his life in us and through us. And then we can serve, nurture, and pray for others because as First Corinthians, uh, Second Corinthians 1 says, we actually are being shaped by our adversities and so that we are able to... Uh, uh, our afflictions, we're able, in our comfort, we can share the comfort that we received when we had the same affliction. This shapes our lives and actually creates something in us that otherwise wouldn't have been there. But now we return, as he says, to the shepherd and guardian of our souls. So as we cling close to the shepherd and stop following the followers, but follow him directly, don't be an imitator of others, but of him. Then the closer we are to the shepherd, then the safer we are in his grip and his, in his hands. And so, and the more intimate we are that he provides for us. And yes, we will suffer adversity and unjust injustice and all kinds of things. And there's more persecution in the world right now than there's ever been in the case of the, in the history of the church. But there's also, especially in the global South, more growth in the church than ever before in terms of the spread of the gospel. So these are exciting times. Right. You point out that, uh, Jesus' silence before his mockers is astonishing. The, the one with all knowledge and who always had the right words to say yeah. could have given a rock-solid defense on his own behalf <laughs> from the cross. Oh, but sure. in but in keeping quiet during his suffering, Jesus was no passive victim. He actively submitted to God. Yes. No one takes my life from me. Right. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. This authority I received from my Father. That's a powerful word. He allowed them. Remember in the garden in John 18, when they said, who are you looking for? And Jesus said, ego Amy, I am. When therefore he said, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. They were pinned. He could have walked right over them. 
No one takes his life from him. But then he let him go. That microburst of his eternal glory was somehow manifested, that transfiguration glory. And when suddenly then he allowed, submitted to that, it showed, no, this is something he was called to do. It was written in the book of your law. I've come to do your will, O God. So with one sacrifice, he then makes it possible for us to know the living God, takes it, takes it away. Because every annual um, Yom Kippur, <clears throat> on that one day, the high yes. priest would be the only one who would go into the most holy place, the Sanctum Sanctorum, and he'd offer the, the, the uh, um, blood sacrifice for his own sins and for those of the people. <clears throat> but this one now has made it possible for, because the blood of bulls and goats, all it did is put off the debt another year. So here's one, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who takes the burden of it all and became sin for us that we might, that might become the righteousness of God. All these things are, again, utterly unique and extraordinary. No one could have made it up or ever did. It was something only that uh, God's Spirit could reveal in his time. And it's a, the more we learn about it, the more astonishing he becomes. Yeah, you write, again, in your book, uh, Shaped by Suffering, in submitting to God, we're making an important acknowledgement. Not only do we not know what's best for ourselves or have the power to bring it about, but we don't even really own our lives. Our lives are God's. We're his agents in the world. As believers, our lives are not about being self-actualized or meeting a certain ideal for ourselves. Our lives are not our own, and they're not to be lived as if they are. Yes, yes. We've been, you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. And so we're doubly his. But first, first by virtue of creation, and now by virtue of the new creation, that of redemption. So we're doubly his. And submitting to God, submitting, submitting ourselves to God then is the pursuit of holiness. The way we become holy, you point out, is not by conforming more and more to a set of rules or regulations but by looking to the Holy One and by following his example, um, walking as Jesus walked. And so let me, let me just read us out to, uh, uh, rather than ask you another question, we're going to break in just a, a few seconds, uh, reading from your book again. We're to work on, to live on in a godly manner, no matter what the circumstances of our lives are, and no matter how others treat us. We can do this because we're active agents in the world, not mere victims, and we have a sovereign God who is working all things together for the good of his children, though we may suffer for a little while now. We're never truly in control of our lives, but in the midst of our decision, we must usually fall to God. Um, welcome back to Amplify. The uh, last uh, 20 minutes of our program, our guest is Dr. Kenneth Boa. We've been talking about uh, his book, Shaped by Suffering, How Temporary Hardships Prepare Us for Our Eternal Home. We've been talking about, um, about, uh, about suffering, talking about 
ministering to others. He talks about the priestly role, not me in the biblical sense, not me just as me as a Catholic priest, but um, he talks about representing God to, he writes about, we're going to talk about it though, representing God to people and representing people to God. And uh, then can you talk about the need for a second reformation? How does that follow? The idea of um, seeing the ministry has always been just like the idea of the work of the people, the liturgy. Uh, the, so the whole idea of of seeing and uh, letting people realize that we are all called to minister as believer priests, yes. and this is not to eliminate the uh, other distinction that we that we have in Catholicism. But the concept, though, is as in a very real sense that we are all, uh, as Peter describes it, then uh, people who are uh, believer. Um, at priests, and so that we all are actually living stones as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The amazing thing, then, is that each of us has a calling to represent God to people and, to, and people to God, and that's where the, the priestly uh, functioning that would be. And we, I think, sometimes fail to see that it's not just something that um, is limited to a few, but we're all called to be engaged in this. When I was, I remember this, it was um, just last year, I was speaking in a um, extended care facility. So it was a, basically, well, I was doing a chapel. And these were people who were octogenarians, nonogenarians, even a few centenarians there. And I wanted to tell them, and I did, that you're not in a waiting room, waiting to die. But you're here for a reason. Some of you are wondering why you're still alive. And I said, as long as you have life and breath and you have opportunity, there's three things you can do, even though your sphere has been diminished. You can still pray for people. You can still love them. And you can serve them, even if it's only two people in your life. And that is an astonishing thought. And that's a priestly function. Then you can pray for them and you can love them. And you can serve them. And this is something any of us can do. And some of them, I think, got it. Some of them, I could tell. Uh, But we have a purpose. As long as we have life and breath, we have a purpose. Yeah, you're right. As a Christian, view of the world is increasingly in the minority in the United States, despite a majority still claiming the Christian label. And as persecution of various kinds spreads, and we referred to this a little bit earlier, it's imperative the true believers take seriously the call to minister to one another as royal priests through prayer, hospitality, and love, using our God-given gifts of service and proclamation. When we do, God will transmute the the lead of suffering into the gold of glory, not only in our lives, but in others' lives also. Yes, and there is a there is an incredible thought about this idea of what really, what is true fame when we think about it? Earth, the earth tells us we're, fam- we're famous because of how many people know us. No, true fame lies not in recognition. It lies in reception, not in how many people know us, but in the invisible and multiform influence of one soul upon another. And thus, real and living fame resonates in anonymous but ineffable ways of diffusion. All authentic fame is fame with God and in the grace of hidden impact. 
to mutual reception. So it reminds me of this wonderful image in uh, the uh, book of, um, it's in the uh, Middle March. And I, I love the ending of Middle March because it describes this uh, very beautifully. Uh, speaking of Dorothea Brooke, the protagonist, this woman who has such potential, but it was unrealized because of her love and service for other people. But the effect of her being on those around her was incalculably diffusive. And I stop with those two words. You can't quantify the diffusive impact of one soul upon another. So the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts. And that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been. It's half owing to the number who live faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. Tell us about um, the eternal glory of which uh, you write. You say, Jesus' words on the cross echo his promise to all his disciples in John 14, 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am, close quote. You write, these words of comfort are a balm to the weary soul. Don't worry, this won't last forever. I'm coming back, yeah. I promise. I promise, yes. yes. That's, that's what it comes down to. It's this concept of the weight of glory, and, and Lewis's uh, wonderful sermon along that line speaks about the fact that we were meant for more than this world can provide. And, if, and as he said, if a trans-temporal, tra uh, trans-finite good is our real destiny, then any other good in which we our desire fixes must be in some way degree fallacious, uh, must bear at best only a symbolical relation to what will truly satisfy. So I love this truth that we are now really seeing what's inside. We all have a longing for more than this world can provide. I came across a photograph. I'll be glad to share it with you like, if you'd like. It's, it just creates this ineffable longing when I see it. It's astonishing. And so it creates that, that things of that longing, that desire for something that's greater than I can even imagine. I'm looking at it even as we speak right now. Hmm. And it's the cosm, so it's, it's the uh, midi-cosm and the macrocosm and the, minor, and the microcosm all in one. Wow. So we're surrounded in ineffable beauty, and our heart is really longing for something that this world can't provide. Only the world wants us to believe the other truth. And so, as Lewis said, almost our whole education has been directed to silencing the, sly, the shy, persistent inner voice. Almost all our modern philosophies have been designed to convince us that the good of man is to be found in this earth. And so if eternal glory is our destiny, what can you tell us about our spiritual home, especially if imagination is insufficient to do that? Yeah. I, um, if you have a moment, I'll tell you a dream I had. Please. And it was not an, it was not an ordinary dream. This was about two years ago. And um, it's one of those dreams. I, usually I can't remember them or they don't make any sense or that sort of a thing. This one was different. I woke up at three in the morning and I said, I've got to remember this. And um, 
I, I won't go into the details of, but, but I, I stayed up and then after a while, the details came together. Essentially, I was uh, in uh, the basement of a house and it was a massive library and it symbolized the knowledge of this world. And I had to go up. The, it was a very narrow stairway with no banister, a couple of feet wide, very steep, four, four floors high, it seemed. And I had to lean over at the top of it. It was the way from this world to the next. It was the, it was the path of, 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 of death. But I leaned over. And uh, there was a flap, and I got in there, and unlike many of my, my dreams where I'm walking around in my underwear at best, uh, this came, I was clothed with, with, with some radiant uh, white garment. And then I went into this room, and there was a group of people, not like people that I would ordinarily know, but what we are intended to become. And I had a vision of how we were, they were communicating, and I was a part of that. What was fascinating is there was no speech uh, it was all uh, telepathic um and but it was music it was beauty mm, it was yes. art it was literature it was humor it was wit it was wisdom and all kinds of things all immersed together and that uh, gave me i think a sense of what will be the joy of the uh, communion of the saints when there is no uh, world there's no downward pull of the world of flesh or the devil and there is now we have been made complete and perfect and we've now been purged and purified what will it be like and then a friend said something he said let's talk to the father hmm. and that extremely yes. that live vibrant conversation as it were suddenly was directed to the father and the joy was so great i couldn't stand it it was so i woke up it was a joy mare Wow. <laughs> and I was overwhelmed. I said, I'm going to remember this thing. It's a joy mare. You know, it was, it, it was a joy mare. It was right. like a hint of home. And it's exactly the ha- thing that happened in my conversion, the night of my conversion. I couldn't stand it. It was too much. And we had to back off. It was, so those are moments. And, yeah. and those are great gifts, I think, that we are given to share with others that we're part of a process as pilgrims and fellow strangers and sojourners in this world that we know we're going to a city that's been that's being made but without hands in which we will be immersed in the wellspring of truth goodness beauty of the um the ultimate relational dynamic and then mysteriously be able to actually immerse ourselves in the new creation in ways that I'm astonished even now as I'm studying my own garden and I'm reflecting on it more and more and being more and more astonished by these ferns and the the three-dimensional topography that carries information that transcends the, the DNA, but it's epigenetic information that is astonishing. How does this What's the mind of the maker, and why does there such an efflorescence, almost a profligate beauty that he it's just over redundant, oh, more than we could ever even imagine? Why does he need to make three hundred and fifty thousand species of beetles? Right, right. right. Would that um, we could understand that even as the world evolves with uh, the wondrous communications technologies that are being developed, that we need to learn to use in a creative good way rather than yes. to, to really separate us more even from God unto our unto ourselves even away from other people we could we could see 
uh, become use those, those same creative powers to see the world around us, what what God has yeah. created around us, and what God and how God has created us in terms of who we are and what we can do. Oh, it's astonishing. You're you're absolutely right. And in fact, as I now see it, there's uh, a way in which I now am seeing because uh, I'm a scientist, and that's been my backdrop. Ah. My but yeah, so uh, yeah. I, I was an astronomer, I, I'm, I, but I'm now consciously endeavoring to utilize our vastly greater knowledge of the creation than was possessed by the biblical writers for the purpose of amplifying wonder and awe. Wow, amplified, right? That's why this program is called Amplify. Um, it's a good, also, yeah, I'm glad that came in there, that word. <laughs> yes. Also, uh, I've loved talking to astronomers, just so you know that. Um, oh, I didn't know that. It's a fascinating, uh, yes. Uh, science and religion is probably my famous, is my most favorite topic at this particular time. So, if you ever have, oh, I do a lot on that. I do a lot of science, faith, and reason. Oh yeah, I do a oh, lot. Oh wow, that. we yes. need we need to talk about that sometime. Oh, I love it. Yeah, that's a big area of me. There of are, yes. But uh, as we begin to close here, uh, there are four general areas related to rewards: the level of responsibility or authority in the kingdom of heaven the degree to which we reflect or display the glory and character of God, the nature and depth of our relationship with people in heaven, and our capacity to know and experience God. So I just want to throw that out there so people will want to read more about your book than we are able to talk about, uh, Shaped by Suffering. But just in light of what we've been talking about, it would seem as if, though, uh, life is changing for you, while you're writing this book, and life is changing for me while I'm reading this book. <laughs> yes, I mean more now than ever before. And those, 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 that was a reflection from my book, conformed to His Image, and the revised editions coming out this fall. And um, it's a, it's my spirit, my textbook on spiritual formation. And now we're going to have a study guide that's coming out as well this fall. So I'm very pleased about that. And I did a 40-part video series as well. So that's going to be fun. And so in the final chapter, A Clear Calling, you write, yeah. in the surrounding culture, materialism, sensuality, corruption, and blatant anti-Christian attitudes continue to run more rampant. Evil is called good and good evil, spurning authority yeah. and anything labeled objective truth. People do as they see fit in their own eyes. Um, yes. how, what, is God, what is God asking us to do right now? Yes, because he, Jesus I, made it very clear um, that in the days prior to his coming that we would see the kinds of things that I think we're beginning to see. And I don't, uh, I, I'm not, I'm not a date setter or anything like that, but I'm seeing processes that um, is really illustrating the very kind of things he was describing. That uh, so it's in the way it's very extraordinary, very exciting to see the possibilities that are are now before us in the way that we didn't see before. So I think it's the opportunities, but we need to leverage the opportunities that we have, in spite of the opposition that is there, uh, to use this in every way we can conceivably do it to, for the glory of God and to use things um, for his purposes. So uh, it's, it's, it strikes me that that's really a key uh, theme, and that's what I'm seeking to do, that we've been given, and I'm, I'm really seeking to use um, 
as I say, there are times of unprecedented opportunities to plunder the Egyptians for eternal gain by leveraging and repurposing the technologies of the new Tower of Babel to impart everlasting truth to immortal beings. It's a little line. I have a list of these ponces, and that's one of them. But um, I believe I, we have opportunities that we never had before. So right. I'm seeking to use them. I've got a recording studio in my basement now, and I'm doing these podcasts, uh, sorry, the podcast and live Zoom studies. So yes. instead of wringing my hands, I'm saying, what can I do? And I think that's what we need to ask ourselves. Instead of uh, wringing our hands in despair, we need to say, Lord, what have you called me to to do at this point in time? That this is a great opportunity, and let me leverage it and go with, give it all I've got. Um, again, you write, modern life is not all bad news. Many aspects of life are better than when I was growing up, but we also need yeah. to be realistic and discerning. I am convinced you write that there is something new and unprecedented about today's age. Digital technology has amplified the opportunities for the flesh to a degree never seen before, and these temptations start from very young ages. And here's this is kind of prophetic as you wrote this over a year ago, I would imagine the yes. division and conflict caused by today's identity politics are the face of a new brand of Marxism, a subtle version yes. that we saw in the 20th century, but equally dangerous as it goes beyond economics and invades the spaces we inhabit daily from home to school to work. A collective intolerance now marks our public and private dialogue. Yes, we've redefined tolerance, and it's, it actually leads to less tolerance than anything we've ever had before. So it's, it's an extraordinary thought. Um, when when, when tolerance is defined as you have to agree with my beliefs and behavior, if you don't, you're not being tolerant. Of course, they fail to see that it cuts the other way. They're not embracing your belief and behavior. Tolerance used to mean I could love you, though I don't have to always agree with what you believe or what you're doing. Now it's been redefined so that the most intolerant context is now the post-modernity of the university system that uses identity politics and, and effectively then eliminates courtesy civility, uh, charity. Um, and so as Dickens put it, it's the best of times is the worst of times. The age of wisdom is the age of foolishness. It's the epic of belief. It's the epic of incredulity. It's the season of light. It's the season of darkness. The spring of hope, the winter of despair. But what is the beauty is that the hope endures because we've, I've read the last act and we know that it, who wins in the end. So it's like cheating. We, I read the last two chapters of the, of, the, of the book of Revelation, and therein lies my perspective, as I said before, no longer defined by the pain of our bounded past, but by the joy of our unbounded future. And that's where, that's where we're heading together. And we'll be home together in ways that the context that that dream intimated will make it beyond our, our capacity. But I haven't seen Maria heard nor has entered into the heart of man all that he's prepared for those who love him. Final words from your book, Shaped by Suffering. Adversity is real and to be expected, but Jesus has overcome the world, and he has promised that his people, the church, will prevail. Ah, Our guest this evening has been Dr. Kenneth Boa talking about his book, Shaped by Suffering. 
Ken, thank you so very much for being with us, and I hope we can do this again sometime, especially now that I know you're a scientist, too. Wow. Yeah, yeah, let's do something on science. Okay, I'd love to do that. All right. Blessings on you and especially on Karen and your family. Thank you. All right. Thank you as well. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye now. So we're coming now, coming to the end of uh, our program. A few words that... uh, uh, that I wanted to say, they don't really have time because we've gone longer, but those words were better than what I was going to read from his from his book anyway. So just time for us to say once again, don't forget how precious life is and how powerful love is. Tell someone now that you love him or her. Pray for peace as if it depended on you alone and come back next Sunday and amplify with us.